Well, how many, how many like the snow? Okay. I guess you're here, so you did it. You did come. Uh, how many don't like it? You just would rather not. Okay. I, I appreciate that. I, I do. I appreciate it. I, I mean, you know, I think we, it takes all kinds, and God made it all, and so I'm good with that. I, I just, I'm just overwhelmed by the beauty of it. Just, just so gorgeous out there. And, um, but, you know, with all that said, I mean, it's, it's interesting how just a little snow, well, that's not a little, but snow can just change everything. You notice that? What, what used to be brown trees and it's somewhat lifeless, and even those look kind of cool, but, but when they're all now covered with snow and the, the way that snow came so wet and heavy and it just stuck on there, you know, even the smallest twigs are amplified. And it's funny how the snow can just change the look. Places I drive by every day, now as I'm driving, I'm like, I can keep my eyes on the road. That's beautiful, you know, right? Jesus changed everything. And as last week, if, if you missed last week, you can always go online on our website and, and find that uh, sermon. But as we talked about how Jesus coming to earth literally changed everything, and as I was meditating on that this last week and then, then working on this week and you know, he, he came and he changed, uh, we, we covered this, he came and he changed the whole covenant system. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this is a cup of my new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. I mean, he literally changed everything. So I was meditating on that this week, I was thinking about this, and, and it dawned on me, why wouldn't that be true? I mean, really, if God is going to go to the trouble of sending his son to earth, that's a monumental thing. And it's going to be a monumental change. And it stands to reason that when he comes, he's going to change everything. The funny thing about it is, as we look at that, for us, it's so difficult because we kind of live in these two worlds. You know, as we read the New Testament, for instance, that was all written 2,000 years ago. So as we read that, in in one sense, we're looking 2,000 years back into history. In another sense, we're trying to live it out here in the 21st century. And then in one sense, we look back there and, and I love this, it's one of the things that just lets you know how reliable the Gospels were because the Gospel writers, as they're, they're writing these biographies, they tell on themselves all the time. Let, let me just tell you what I'm talking about. If, if it was made up, don't you think the disciples would have made themselves look better? I mean, really. Because as we look at it, we, we read what, they, what they're writing and we're like, how come they don't see it? And it's not really fair because we're standing 2,000 years later and we've got all of it written out, the whole thing. They had none of that. All they had was the Old Testament. And they had it in Hebrew. And then, then uh, for them, they didn't have any of the context that we enjoy 2,000 years later. So for us, when we look at them and say, oh, I can't believe they had such a little faith. Or I can't believe they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. As we say those things, in a way, that's just totally unfair. Because they didn't know any of that. But of course, when Jesus came, he was going to change everything. We talked about how we have the covenants, the old and the new. And the Old Testament represents all of those old covenants. And then Jesus said that when he came, not only did he come with a new covenant, which we see represented and described in the New Testament, but he said that he fulfilled the old covenant. We talked about what a covenant is and what that means and how a covenant is is similar to, well, it is, it's an agreement between two people. And we talk about this new covenant, God came to make this new covenant and he sent his son Jesus, not only as the one to establish it, but to explain it and then to pay the price for it with his own body. 
we talked about it. It's, it's similar to a wedding vow, how it has these promises and stipulations, and, and you're going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I pledge to do this, and we do that in front of witnesses, and we say, forsaking all others, we'll be bound only to you. Jesus didn't come to destroy the old, as we showed last week. He says here in Matthew, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. And he achieved that purpose. Remember, we talked about the fact it's about it's about the heart. It's not just about rules. Much of the old covenant was just follow the letter of the law, follow the rules. And you know how that works, because as human beings, we always try to find end arounds and exceptions and ways to make it work. And here we're, we're not that close, but we're coming up on tax time. Anybody start counting up your receipts yet? I really almost did that the other day, and I thought, I can't do that. That's way ahead of time. How many of you have been tempted at times to change a little bit or just to push the rules a little bit or to say, well, I know this receipt is for this, but maybe it would fit because it's about rules. I have to be honest with you. My heart's not into paying taxes. I don't want to do that. I'm not all hip on all that. It's different. The old covenant was about how close you could get to the line without stepping over and pushing the boundaries. Jesus took it to the heart of the matter. And he said, it's not about the letter of the law. It's about changing the heart. It's, and I mentioned that example. It's, it's like in a marriage. You pledge faithfulness. You pledge to be true to your spouse. You pledge all of that, and you do that before God and witnesses, and then you wear the symbol of that in the form of a ring. But, but it's not as if you have to have the ring to do it because your heart is what guides you in doing that. You treat your spouse in a certain way. You treat them lovingly. You're faithful because love compels you, not because you keep looking at a ring. It's not because you have a certificate somewhere. Does anybody know where that is, by the way? It's in your purse, right? Right. You don't do that because of those things. You don't give. You don't put them first. You don't encourage them and serve them because you have a piece of paper and a ring. You do it because your heart compels you. You honor and cherish because of your heart. And I mentioned this quote by St. Augustine where he said, love God and then do whatever you want. The fact is, whatever you want to do will be the right thing. You don't have to look at the law because you'll do the law. It'll come automatic because your heart is in it. Because you love him so much, you would never want to do something that would violate or offend. And here's the problem. Have you ever looked at something and you just couldn't see what was obvious to everybody else? Have you ever had that experience? I mean, it seems like everybody gets it and you're like, I don't get it. Maybe that happened to you in school. Maybe it was math class and everybody else seems to understand. And they're furiously working away and you're like, I have no idea what to do. Have you ever had that happen? And again, as in talking about the disciples, there's times where you know that they were seeing what was going on or they could see it, but they didn't see it. It's like there was more there that they just couldn't see. And where Jesus is trying to tell them, it's about the heart, guys. They just couldn't seem to get it. And again, to be fair, they didn't have all the context we have. But I want to take a look at a little bit about that and just to kind of give us a little bit of sense of maybe what they were feeling. Um, let's take a look at this. You guys remember these? Now, for some of you, I know they're annoying, so don't, don't look. Just, just in, indulge the rest of us. Remember, some of the time they called them uh, Magic Eye. Did you know there's actually a, a real name for these? They're called, um, I had to look it up because I didn't even know. They're called autostereograms. So, can anybody see what's in that one? Not at all? 
I mean, I know for some people they say you got to get a certain distance or back away from it or kind of cross your eyes. A little. It's getting, anybody see it? It's actually a squirrel with a bunch of acorns. You can't see it, but it's in there. How about this one? <laughs> it looks like nothing, right? Snow? <laughs> no, yeah, that did look like that a few times yesterday. No, it's not snow. Anybody? Anybody? It's actually a pitcher. There's a pitcher, like you might pour a fancy pitcher of water right there. But how about this? Uh, you look at these lines, and again, for some of you, I don't want anybody getting dizzy or getting in a headache, but those lines look straight to you? I promise you they are. They are actually straight. But it's funny how you can see something and not see it. You see it, but you, you're distracted, or the way that they've spaced them, or how have they done it, it makes it look like the lines are all crooked, but they're not. How about this one? Can you see that in there? Can anybody not see the hide-and-seek? You can see it over here, but not right there. Depending on the angle, you can see without seeing. Now, how about this? Now, some of us, I know Jeff is my brother in this, but um, can anybody see anything in those dots? You see what? (laughs) I'll take your word for it, because I don't see anything in there. Jeff, do you see anything in there? No, Jeff and I. Anybody else have color issues, colorblind issues? I know Jeff is more, is, is like, you're real colorblind. I know I'm red, green, deficient. I mean, I can see some things, but I can't see that. I don't see a 12 in there. How about this? Anybody see anything in there? What does it say? What's it say? Letter v. Oh, the letter V? Yeah, I'll take your word for it. I don't see it. I mean, I see that, but I don't see it. So if I take an eye test, you know, they have a bunch of these little symbols, and I get up to like the third or fourth one, and then that's it. I don't see any more. And I remember last time I had the eye test, I asked the lady, I said, how common is that? She goes, well, actually, more, more than you would guess. She goes, but, you know, the, of course, most people can see them all. But, but it's, she goes, it's about 10, 12% of people have, you know, some level about that. But how many times has this happened? You're talking to somebody, and you completely misunderstand. You... <laughs> You see without seeing. I mean, you, you know the words, right? Has this ever happened where somebody's talking and you're like, okay, I know that's English. I understood every one of those words, but I have no idea what they just said. And you're just kind of staring at them. And you're just hoping that somehow by the rest of what they're talking about, the context, maybe body language, you'll somehow be able to interpret what they really were saying. And you wait, and then at some point you're like, hold on, you got to go wait. I lost your way back here. Did it ever happen to anybody else? Now, sometimes you're actually actively listening, working with it, watching them, paying attention, and you misunderstand. But, but a lot of times, I don't know if you've noticed this, I mean, sometimes it can be culture. Maybe you just speak differently or have different, different uh, uh, figures of speech. You know, and, and I don't know in Missouri if we have a bunch of those. I know I worked for a pastor one time from Texas. He had a saying for everything. I mean, everything, every little thing he had a saying for. He, he happened to uh, be uh, bald also, and he had a ton of funny lines about that, you know, and whatever. But this culture, it's different. Um, sometimes it's just definitions. Like, you may define words differently. Someone uses a word that maybe you're unfamiliar with, or maybe you don't define it the way they use it in the sentence, and you just stuck. So then the rest of what they said, you miss, because, like, wait a minute, wait, 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 go back, Right? I want to say this, though. There's times when someone is speaking as plainly as possible, and we just don't get it. Not to be offensive at all, but would you admit that sometimes you just don't want to? 
like the truth of what they're saying might be a little too uncomfortable or painful, so you just like, I don't get it. You do, but you don't want to. So you can somehow turn off that part of your listening and understanding, and it just flows by, right? Maybe you feel like your children have that problem or your husband or something, but um, sometimes we're just on a different plane, and it's just not connecting. And sometimes we're just not listening. Do you realize that? You're just distracted. It's like you're looking at the wrong thing, and our minds are just somewhere else, or, or maybe we're just not as interested as we should be. Not to be, again, offensive, but you don't care enough to understand. Because understanding sometimes takes work. I mean, to really understand what somebody's saying. Now, I want you to see the picture. I'm, I'm talking here about the disciples, and they could see, but they weren't seeing. And again, to be fair, we're talking about something where we have the context and we have the explanations. But for them, just to, just to understand what they were experiencing, they were in a whirlwind. They, didn't, they were just caught up, and I think sometimes they were overwhelmed by all the changes. I mean, this guy they're following, he's, does, he's doing all these, all these miracles, and so they know he has to be from God. But then he's saying things that it's upsetting their entire religious system. Now, Jews, Jews were trained different than us. They were brought up so that, you, you know, the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah for the, for the girls. I mean, they, they had to memorize so much scripture. They understood their religion probably better than the average Christian at 12. Probably. These were good Jewish boys. So when Jesus was doing these things, there were probably a lot of times they're like, they were just overwhelmed. It had to be a whirlwind. And, the, and they said he couldn't have possibly meant what he just said. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one goes to the Father but by me. We see that and we say, well, duh, it's Jesus. He died and rose again. None of that happened yet. How did they think you got to the Father? By following the rules. That's it. That was the only way. The Ten Commandments. And if you wanted to add maybe a little caveat, also by being Jewish. So when he said he was the only way, they probably thought, maybe he means following the rules like he just said. Maybe he's, he couldn't possibly mean just him. But for us, we're like, of course he meant him. For them, they were blown away. When he said, I from me will spring rivers of life, and then when you drink it, you will never thirst again. What do you think they thought? Don't you think at one point they might have thought? <laughs> he's, maybe I wasn't supposed to say that out loud. He's, <laughs> he's out of his mind. That couldn't possibly happen. When he stood in front of everybody and he said, I am the bread of life. You need to eat of me. That really freaked a lot of people out. It freaked them out, and a lot of people left. They were in a whirlwind. Of course they couldn't see. They saw, but they couldn't see. I mean, it had to be so confusing. At this point, the religious rulers had asked for another sign, and Jesus was frustrated with them, and this is what he says to him. He says, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what do you think he meant by that? You can, you can talk in church. What do you think he meant? Three days in the belly, right? And Jonah was in the belly three days, and he, got, he came, was vomited out, right? And Jesus was going to die and be in the belly of the earth three days and right, rise again? They didn't know that. What do you think they thought he was talking about? They probably thought, sign of Jonah? 
what would the sign of Jonah be? How could they even know what that would be? Maybe they thought his preaching, because when Jonah did preach, all of Nineveh, Nineveh repented of their sin. Maybe that's what they thought the sign would be. And they thought the sign would be his effectiveness. Regardless, they didn't know. So then what happens in this story is, as Matthew tells the story, then they start walking along and... Uh, they start arguing because they realize none of them brought any bread. Now, they're traveling together. They're with Jesus 24-7. And probably it was somebody's responsibility to make sure they always had food and there was no food. And so at some point, Jesus hears them arguing and he says, Why are you arguing about food? Don't you remember I just fed 5,000 people a little while ago and 4,000 before that and there was plenty of food left over? And I'm sure they're thinking, how do you know what we are arguing about? I mean, there we're in a whirlwind. And as that goes along, he says this. <laughs> Oops, sorry. They, he says, watch out. He says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Uh, and so they think the yeast was about them not bringing bread. So then he says, why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? He's basically saying, you guys, you're seeing, but you're not seeing. How come you don't get it yet? And he says, so again, I say, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Maybe you're not familiar with those terms, but those were the two ruling classes of Jewish leaders at the time. It would, it would, it, it's not ex ex nowhere near the same, but it'd be kind of like, like Republicans and Democrats, but not exactly. But they ran the Jewish legal system and everything. Then at last, they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast and the bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, my goodness. They saw, but they didn't see. It was as if over and over and over, they kept misunderstanding what he was talking about. Then, Jesus takes him and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And in a way, it was a test, and I'm sure Jesus knew what, what was going to come next. But, but what he's wondering is, well, just think of it this. If they keep seeing without seeing, he's, he might have been wondering, do they even really get it? Do they know who I am? So he said, who do people say that I am? So the disciples answer, and they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're maybe one of the other prophets. So Jesus says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? Do you remember what happened? Remember what Peter said? Peter says, he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. And he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but the Holy Spirit did. And upon this truth, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to fight against it. Okay, stop. You guys quoted the rest of the verse in your mind, right? You know what that means. You know what they probably thought? What's a church? You realize this is the first time he says church? The other time he says church is in two, ver two chapters later when he's talking about church discipline. And he says if, somebody, if you're going to confront somebody, you need to do it privately, one-on-one. -on -one. And if that doesn't work, go to somebody else and then go with them. And you're supposed to be trying to win the brother back over. That's the goal. And then if that doesn't work, take them in front of the church. At this point, they're like, what's going on? He's the Messiah. And they're just, their heads are spinning and swimming. They're seeing, but they don't see. And they're probably totally confused. And what's he talking about? Then he goes further and he says, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And after I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Everybody's wondering, what is he talking about? And then he keeps going. Look at this. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly, plainly, 
that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that when he suffered many things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, he would be killed, but on the third day, he'd be raised from the dead. What were they thinking? Do you think they really saw? Not to be confusing, there's no way they saw what you see. There's no way. There's no way they could possibly see what you know happened next. They heard these things and they saw it and they probably thought, no, he can't die. That couldn't happen. There's no way that could happen. In fact, in verse 22, Peter says, no, 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 no. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter's saying, no way. Even though Jesus plainly told them it has to happen, it's necessary. Peter can't see it, so he says no. And look what Jesus says to him. He turns to Peter and he says, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. You're seeing, but you're not seeing. Again, do you think Peter would have made this story up and then have Jesus call him Satan? (laughs) No, I don't think so. And this is just a few verses after Jesus told him he was the rock. The truth is, they were all over the place. It's, it's kind of like the covenants, the, the old covenant, the new covenant. It's what he's trying to get them to see is it's not just about the physical, Peter. It's about the spiritual. And I have to die because otherwise there will never be a spiritual change in people. I have to do this. But they couldn't possibly see it. It's a heart change. If it was just about following the rules, we already have the rules. It's not about that anymore. It's about their heart being changed. Being a Christian is about the heart. It's about the heart. You know, Jesus, he always reserved his most harsh criticisms for those religious rulers. Because for them, it was all the external. And he kept telling them, it's not the external, just rule, rule, rule. If you're going to see this, you have to see past all of this. It's not external holiness. It's really heart change. This, um, the Greeks... They were in a Greek world at the time. The, Greeks, the Greek culture had just been taken over by Rome just about 100 years before. And basically what the Romans did is just kind of reinvent and modernize the Greek culture. This is actually from Greece. It's a mosaic showing a Greek play. And you may not be able to tell from where you're sitting, but those are masks the actors are wearing. And, and you may not know this. I, I mean, I didn't know all this, but... In, in the Greek plays, similar to actually to when Shakespeare wrote even, all the actors were male. So if you were going to have a female part, they would just put a mask on. Or if you're going to have that person on the right, see how scary they look? That would have been a mask. So you'd have multiple characters playing multiple parts, all male, female, male parts, didn't matter, but they would wear a mask. Do you know that's where the word hypocrisy comes from? Because you wear a mask. It looks right on the outside, But the inside's not changed. You could be smiling, but the heart is sad. Or sad and the heart is happy. Or, you know, male, female, whatever. But but that idea of hypocrisy is external. So again, with the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, Jesus keeps telling them, you see, but you don't see. So here, they say, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. So Jesus replies, You hypocrites, that's that word. It means to use a mask. Hypocrite. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, 
for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Their hearts weren't God-honoring at all. Then Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, all of you listen and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled but from what comes from your heart. Heart, heart, heart. I, and you know this, you do. How many of you guys were ever in an argument with a brother, sister, maybe someone on the playground and the teacher said, okay, now everybody hug it out. And you hugged them and you went away unchanged. You did whatever it took to get through the situation because your heart wasn't changed. You knew that. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> How do you change someone's heart? How do you do it? Maybe you have misbehaving kids and you want their heart changed. Maybe, maybe your marriage is struggling and you want to change your spouse's heart. Maybe a friend relationship is crashing and you don't know what to do. You can't change their heart. They have to change their heart. God can only, only God can change a heart. It's a free will thing because it's the same with him. He, he doesn't want to manipulate and change your heart because he wants your heart to be a choice you make to change. He's not going to force you into anything. He's going to lead and guide you and, and, and warn you and tell you and, and send people to tell you and, and say, I love you and I care about you and this change needs to happen and he's going to show you and he's, he's, he's going to protect you and guide you. But ultimately, you have to choose to change. You have to choose to change your heart. He won't change it. You have to choose it. He tells you he loves you and he proves it by sending his son and he probably sends countless people into your way to help make a change, but ultimately, you have to change. So how is your heart? I asked you that last week. How is your heart? Is it critical maybe or ungrateful or selfish or arrogant or unforgiving or lustful or prideful or hurt? Maybe it's hurt. Maybe you would like to change, but it's hurt and you're protecting it right now because it's hurt. And you know your heart needs to change. God doesn't stop with our heart. Last week, all we talked about was your heart. He doesn't stop with your heart. You know why? We have to care about other people's hearts too. It's an interesting thing. This, this verse I want us to look at, he says we have to demonstrate active love. This, in Romans 12, I'm gonna, we're going to look at, uh, I think, four different versions here. In the NIV, love must be sincere. You could say without hypocrisy. You could say with no mask. You could say with no fakery or dis, dis, uh, just lying, but true, true from the heart. You guys ever faked it? Been nice and then didn't mean it? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. He gives the definition. It's a very active, active thing. That's in the NIV, and it's, it's wonderful. Let's look at it in the New Living Translation. Don't just pretend to love others. It's almost like he's, it's getting more pointed, isn't it? Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring other. That is a very selfless love right there. Recently, I had done some flying, and um, there was a couple times where 
people couldn't get their bags up. And I, I love sitting on the aisle because it gives you just a little more room. And, and um, so I had helped a couple of people with their bags. And at one point, uh, one of the stewardesses, she was, she was, I was helping and she had said something about that. And later she came by and said, would you like some extra peanuts for helping with that bag? <laughs> like, no. And so um, I had noticed that she was a little older and, you know, and she would talking and really nice to these people. And then, um, I mean, I didn't, I never know her. I mean, I didn't talk to her past that, but then later as we were changing flights, I saw her in the, uh, in the airport. It was like another person. It was so weird because on the plane, she was so nice to everybody helping this person, helping this person doing this, doing this. But then in the, in the airport, I could see she just like had her head down and I saw a couple people from the flight say hi to her, and she kind of looked at him like, why are you talking to me? And it dawned on me, she was at work a minute ago, and now she's not. Now, at first I thought, well, maybe she's got to get somewhere. Maybe she's trying to connect, and like, I don't have time to talk to every single person. (laughs) And I thought, well, how funny, because it's kind of a picture of how we are sometimes. Because I don't think she was really the person on the flight. That was her job, to be nice. She got paid to do that. But then in the, in the terminal, she just, and maybe, you know what? I kept thinking, well, maybe she's tired. I don't know. I don't know her. I don't, maybe she's been working all day. Maybe she's been on her feet literally the whole time. Maybe it was super stressful. Maybe, maybe a bunch of people had just, you know, complained and complained. And you know how it can be. And you hear about things televised on flights and how they, somebody, you know, loses their mind on a plane and the poor you know, the steward is caught in the middle of it and flight attendant or whatever. This is the amplified version. Love is to be sincere and active, the real thing without guile or hypocrisy. Keeps getting more and more, huh? Hate what is evil, detest all ungodliness and do not tolerate wickedness. Hold on tightly to what is good. Be devoted to one another with authentic brotherly affection as members of one family give preference to one another in honor wow 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 did anybody grow up in a big family when um you know you get ready to eat and you remember how we used to eat family style and you put it out there and you see the hamburger and the biggest nicest juiciest one and kids fight over it remember that Maybe you grew up with a mean brother and he would lick it real quick. <coughs> it's sad that even in our own families, a lot of times we don't really prefer each other. We try to get what's ours or get it first or get the best. Give preference to one another in honor. One last, one last version. This is the message. Eugene Peterson's the message. Love from the center of who you are. Doesn't that say everything? I mean, if it's, you can fake, I, I think we, almost anybody can fake anything, right? You can be nice for 30 minutes, right? But if it's real, if it's the center of who you are, you can't help but love because it's in you and it's just flowing out. You can't stop it because it's who you are. It's the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run from, for dear life from evil. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who deeply love. Practice playing second fiddle. 
I'm going to ask you to shut your eyes for a second here. You can't do that on your own. I'm sorry, because you'd be faking it. It really does take a heart change. If as you've been hearing these things and you're thinking, man, I don't measure up there, or maybe sometimes I'm that flight attendant and I act a certain way when I have to, and then when I don't, I just let the real me come out. I'm not saying for you to fake it. I'm not. And I'm not saying that God would want us to just try harder like we talked about last week. That's not it either. What it is is to let him in and let him change your heart. Because once your heart is changed, you, you naturally act different. It's from the center of who you are that it comes out. Are you willing to let him in? That's the question. With your eyes just closed, this is just to be private in a room full of people. Are you, let, are you willing to let him and look around and let him judge? It's a word we don't like in our world today, judge. It's like Christians get blamed for judging and there's a lot of judging that goes around. We're good at judging others, but sometimes it's difficult to actually judge ourselves and even more difficult to tell God, of all people, you have the right to judge me and I want you to. Would you invite him in to judge you? Might be scary. Maybe you're angry at him right now and maybe for something you feel like he's done or didn't do or something that didn't work out or he's let you down or so many things could fit into that category. Maybe you just don't trust him right now. You're not ready to give him control or authority in your life right now. I just want to say this to you that you may not feel like it, but he loves you more than anything else. He created you because he loves you. He wants relationship with you. And what he wants for you is the best possible thing that could happen. Maybe you know you should try and trust him a little bit. And you're willing to open the door some. That's all it takes. He's calling to you and wanting to come in. Make a change. With your heads closed, or eyes closed and heads bowed. Um, I wonder if anybody in here might be here and for the first time you're thinking I don't know about all this but if you're telling me the truth and it feels like you are maybe inside you feel like a little uneasiness or a burning inside and maybe that's God himself saying let me in you can trust me maybe you've never trusted him before but you might be willing to trust him today if you would raise your hand I'd like to pray with you anybody like that at all just like to let him in I see the hand. I appreciate that. Anybody else? I see that hand too. You can put that down. I appreciate that. Anybody else? I want us to all pray together right now. If you would just repeat after me, for those of you who raised your hand, all we're going to do is invite him in. And maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you... It's not your first time. Maybe for you, though, you realize it needs something needs to change and you don't have the right attitude and maybe your heart isn't right and you know it needs to be right. You can pray this too and mean it because he will come in and change your heart. So please, everybody, if you would just repeat after me. Father God, I'm sorry I've closed you out sorry I've let my heart become hard I need you 
I want you to change my heart. I want to see. I want to see what's real. I want the right things to come out of my heart. Come in and change me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. That's my prayer for you today as well. Pastor Jeremy. What a great reminder this morning. I'll never forget one day when several years ago I was was speaking with my daughter, Evie. Uh, She was just real little at this time, and talked to her about Jesus living in her heart and in her in her life and she said well daddy if Jesus is in our heart what does he do just walk around on our bones <laughs> and it's just <laughs> an honest uh, uh kids are so literal and, and it's so funny and but the the deal is 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 you're letting him come in and change your life you know it's more than just a simple prayer it's a life change it's a spirit change and it's a constant change we're always changing and we're always becoming like